Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. A new report shows temperatures around the world will reach record highs over the next five years. And Arctic heating is predicted to be more than three times higher than the global average. We are heading into unprecedented territory. It is an alarm bell for the planet. The global consequences of a warming Arctic. That's coming up on Day 6. Today discrimination in the public service. Federal employers have their preferred visible minority. Canada's Human Rights Commission faces embarrassing findings of racism. Unhappy ending. I think she's someone who was judged so much during her lifetime. A new doc on the short life of Anna Nicole Smith. And when much made music momentous. Anything that we did hadn't been done before. Three much VJs look back on their days on Queen Street West. All today on Day 6, the Before We Cut the Cable edition. There's a 66% chance that we would exceed 1.5 degrees during the coming five years. This week, the World Meteorological Organization said the Earth is likely to breach an important milestone very soon by exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Climate scientists say staying below that threshold is key to limiting the most catastrophic effects of climate change. The good news is that we haven't yet tipped the planet there permanently. If that happens, it'll be thanks to a warm El Nino weather pattern, and it would likely be temporary. The bad news is that Canada has already blown well past 1.5 degrees. As a country, we're 1.9 degrees warmer now than in 1948, and the Arctic is warming much faster than that. New research finds the Arctic has actually heated up nearly four times faster than the Earth as a whole. A warming Arctic is a problem on its own, but it's made worse because that warming starts to generate feedback loops. So climate change generates effects that make climate change worse, producing more effects and more climate change. Matt Simon is a science journalist and a senior staff writer for Wired magazine. Recently, he wrote the article, The Far North is Burning and Turning Up the Heat on the Planet. Matt, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. And thank you for having me. Let's focus on the North. You've recently written that wildfires and human meddling are transforming the Arctic and its surroundings from a carbon sink into a carbon emitter. How is that happening? These northern lands have in large part saved humanity from itself. So just by these natural processes, you get a lot of carbon sequestered in the Arctic and in the boreal forests just south of that. Um, Peatlands are concentrated carbon, as is permafrost. You have all the carbon stored in these forests uh, in the above ground vegetation. So we have long been able to rely on that as a, a way for the planet to capture its own carbon. But as we are warming the planet and as we are providing more sources of ignition for wildfires, as well as draining peatlands uh, and setting them on fire as well, we are 
turning these carbon sinks really into massive carbon sources. This is a tremendous amount of carbon that could be escaping from these northern lands in the near future. Can you categorize that? How much carbon are we talking about? Is it possible to imagine it? Uh, it's very difficult to, to put enough emphasis on how much carbon we're talking about here. So uh, one of the things that scientists are pursuing is calculating the methane released from permafrost thawing, mm -hmm. as well as carbon dioxide. There was a study that I talk about in this recent story that I did that found that on a typical year, these boreal forests might account for something like 10% of the carbon dioxide emissions from wildfires globally. In 2021, which was a particularly bad fire year in the far north, of North America, it was responsible for about a quarter of wildfire carbon emissions worldwide. So you are seeing these big burps of this carbon. Um, we know that there is a lot of it stored up there. What scientists are trying to figure out now is how quickly is that being released and how much might we expect these feed loops to really kick in that you get extra release of carbon from these northern areas that then in turn leads to more warming and then potentially more release of carbon. It could be a, a runaway cycle here. It's, is that what you're talking about when you wrote the far north is a potent environmental time bomb? It is, yeah. So we we know that we're already, as humans, pushing these landscapes um, in, in bad directions. As I mentioned, draining peatlands, for instance, and setting them on fire to make room for agriculture. We are kicking off these feedback loops that mm -hmm. science has very little understanding of, um, and very little understanding in particular of, of how much we should worry about them really leading to these runaway feedback loops that um, not only warm the planet in general, um, but add to these pressures on these, these northern ecosystems. And that, that will be a planetary effect. But I've been watching the heat maps throughout the spring, and I can see that many of the highest temperatures on the planet compared to the normal temperatures for this time of the year are concentrated in the Arctic. The Arctic is warming much faster than the global average, by some measures four times faster. Why is that? That is due to seemingly a, a number of factors. The biggest one here being that when ice melts, it exposes either darker land that's just the dirt underneath it, or if it's sea ice, it exposes the water, which is actually quite dark if these waters are deep. That then absorbs more heat, leads to more melting of ice, and another one of these feedbacks. If you have this get out of control, um, you have a harder time forming sea ice and, and keeping it in the Arctic. So that's leading to something called Arctic amplification, which is, as you had mentioned, this warming four times that of the average across the globe. So it, that then threatens to kick off a number of issues with uh, ocean currents coming out of the Arctic that could influence the way that circulation works in the Atlantic, for example. So I like to say what happens in the Arctic in no way stays in the Arctic. This is something that we as a species all over the world should be very concerned about. Oh, there's so many pieces that are implicated here by, by every action. And then, of course, the wildfires in Alberta. So clearly heat is playing a role in those wildfires. But how, how did they fit into the feedback loops that, that you're describing? Yeah, so there's a, a very strong signal here that we see around the world with wildfires. So as, as the world heats up, you get vegetation drying out much easier. That provides very dry fuel um, to burn catastrophically. I'm in San Francisco. We have uh, massive wildfires here now in California, which are uh, in large part driven by climate change. Same mm -hmm. with Australia's bushfires. In the north, in, in Canada, you're getting this same effect as the planet warms and as these northern lands warm much faster. Not only do you 
have more dry fuel to burn catastrophically, you're actually getting more sources of ignition. So these areas are, are getting so warm that they're getting thunderstorms where there's no business being thunderstorms. So they're now striking within 300 miles of the North Pole, which is mm-hmm. which is stunning. This this is a tropical typically phenomenon. These these thunderstorms that you need a lot of heat to generate. Um, so you are both getting fuel building up in in these northern areas and more sources of ignition by way of lightning strikes. Uh, another one of these feedback loops. You know, you keep warming these areas, they keep releasing more carbon, and they keep warming, and and on and on and on. Earlier, you talked about the carbon sink that exists in the Arctic as a kind of protectorate of the globe. But if we lose the Arctic as an effective carbon sink, is there anything else in the world that could replace it? No. And and it's just such a a, a beautifully dynamic ecosystem. So as I I had mentioned, you have permafrost, which is thousands of years worth of organic matter frozen into the soil that's thawing and producing methane, which is a a greenhouse gas that's 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide. You have that combined with these peatlands that are maybe a thousand years of built up organic material that should be storing carbon in the long term. Uh, You have farther south, these boreal forests that are capturing their own carbon. That is such a a massive sink of carbon for global carbon levels. You can look at other places around the world where there's there's these peatlands, but we're losing those as well as fires sweep there through places like Indonesia. Um, we have put to a large degree a lot of our eggs in the basket of carbon capture technology, so inventing ways to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And I, I feel like we are woefully ignoring these perfectly natural and extremely powerful ways of capturing carbon in the Arctic and in the lands just south of it. Uh, That is a huge opportunity, both for reducing carbon concentrations in the atmosphere, but bolstering these ecosystems that we should be saving, regardless of whether or not they're, they're capturing carbon. Matt Simon, thank you very much for being with us. And thank you for having me. Matt Simon is a science journalist and a senior staff writer for Wired Magazine. Still to come, what happens when the body meant to settle cases of workplace discrimination is discriminating against its own employees? This is equivalent to state-sponsored discrimination. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. But, but it sounds like many of you would want to exclude the parents. But that's what I'm getting from this problem is you feel a parent should be excluded. That's what I'm getting from this. The New Brunswick government is reviewing its policy on making schools a safe space for LGBTQ kids. Among other things, Policy 713 allows students under 16 to adopt a new name and pronouns in the classroom without the school notifying their parents. Premier Blaine Higgs has made it clear he doesn't like that provision. Education Minister Bill Hogan says he expects the review and any changes to the policy to be done within two weeks. Pride in Education, a group that worked on the drafting of the policy, says it hasn't been contacted about the review. And with wildfires still raging across the north of the province, Alberta has closed several provincial parks and recreation areas for the long weekend. Typically, more human-caused wildfires are started this weekend than any other time of the year. Close to 500 wildfires have burned nearly 800,000 hectares of land in Alberta so far this year. The area burned by wildfires each year across Canada has more than doubled 
since the 1970s. Hot and dry weather is expected across northern Alberta through the long weekend. Officials say it could be months before the fires are brought under control. Still to come here on Day 6, Anna Nicole Smith was a media sensation, a punchline, and ultimately a tragedy. A look at the real life behind the headlines in a new documentary called Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me. She was there at a moment when, you know, the tabloid media was sort of at its height. There are no avenues for meaningful career development for black employees, regardless of their contributions. The institution relies on non-advertised processes to create advantage for some and disadvantage for others. That's Bernadette Butchie, a former employee of the Canadian Human Rights Commission, speaking to a Senate committee earlier this month. In her testimony, she recounts her experience of being denied promotions at the commission, despite her qualifications, while she watched her colleagues get promoted without competition. In March, the federal government's own HR wing ruled that the Canadian Human Rights Commission discriminated against its black and racialized employees. But Butchie says that had been clear to her for a long time. Long before any investigation took place, it was commonplace for staff to speculate about how a complainant is imagining things. It couldn't possibly be about race. They must be lying. According to the commission's own records, it rejects discrimination complaints that are based on racism at a higher rate than any other category of complaint. Nicholas Marcus Thompson is the executive director of the Black Class Action Secretariat, which brought a class action lawsuit against the federal government on behalf of all of its black employees in 2020. Nicholas, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. When did you start paying attention to concerns around racism at the Canadian Human Rights Commission? Actually, around uh, 2020 is when we started organizing. Uh, Myself, um, at the time, I was a union president uh, representing workers at the Canada Revenue Agency. And at that agency, which was one of the largest employers, we recognized a very troubling trend, which was black employees were in entry-level positions. Some racialized employees were just above that, non-black and that the executive of the Canada Revenue Agency was reserved for white employees. Mm -hmm. As part of our review, we started looking outside of the CRA, and then we started finding the same thing, that black employees were being excluded from promotional opportunities, exceptionally qualified, but remained in entry-level positions for decades while new employees would come in and uh, climb all the way up uh, to the top. We're talking with, about people with multiple degrees serving for decades, retiring after 30 years, 40 years in the same entry-level positions, their pension impacted, their mental health, the generational impact to their family uh, as well. I, I had some hope, uh, Brent, I have to say I had some hope when I went to the Canadian Human Rights Commission. When I landed at that department mandated to protect uh, and to promote human rights, the workers there told me a very different story. What were the employees telling you? They told me that they were facing the same challenges that black workers face across the public service. The supervisors, managers, and executives, those positions were predominantly white employees, and they did not have the opportunity to excel. And they told me how when they made decisions on a race-based case that came before them, how their white supervisors were rejecting those cases at a disproportionate rate. 
uh, compared to non-race-based complaints. And were you surprised? I mean, this is the Human Rights Commission. Yes. Were you surprised that this department of all departments I, would have these issues? I had my doubts, but I had hope. I thought that they would be the standard bearer. After all, in order for Canada to meet its human rights obligation domestically and internationally, it required a functioning human rights commission that protected human rights. Federal employees rely on the commission to hear their grievances around discrimination. Tell us about the role the commission plays once it receives those complaints. The commission plays a very important role, not only to federally regulated employers and employees, but to the Canadian public, any member of the Canadian public that has an interaction with a federal institution or federally regulated institution can file a complaint on one of the protected grounds under the Canadian Human Rights Act to this commission. And for it to be discriminating against its own workers, and not only its own workers, but it's discriminating against the Canadian public as well. It is completely egregious. So if the commission finds that a case is not worthy of being looked into, what is the recourse that the complainant then has? Then that complainant has very little recourse, especially if it's an employee of the federal government. They can seek judicial review. But who has the means to be able to do that and to wait those amount of years to go through that process? You just suffer in silence. What steps has the commission taken to address the findings of racism within the institution? The commission, it's failing. It's failed in its mandate. So what we are calling on is for the government of Canada to address anti-black racism and systemic discrimination by making sweeping amendments to Canada's Employment Equity Act. This is the legislation that employers like the commission uses to exclude black employees. This piece of legislation creates four categories for protection, indigenous people, women, visible minorities, and people with uh, disabilities. When it comes to visible minorities, it's essentially everyone that is not white or indigenous. Mm -hmm. To meet employment equity, and there's usually a gap, Federal employers have their preferred visible minority or racialized group that they would use for employment equity, and it's usually not black employees. So to address this issue, we're calling on the government of Canada to create a designated category considering black people's historic oppression in Canada to finally recognize black people as a distinct category under the Employment Equity Act. So federal employers cannot hide behind visible minority and discriminate against black people. Your organization also brought a class action lawsuit against the federal government on behalf of all of its black employees alleging similar issues. What is the status of that lawsuit right now? The, the lawsuit is awaiting what's called certification. It's where the federal court will determine if it meets the definition of a class action to move forward to actually a trial. Mm -hmm. Canada has filed motions to dismiss the class action, saying that workers have redress through the grievance process and that workers can go to the Canadian Human Rights Commission for redress. Okay. So, <laughs> and what is the irony here? So the commission that the government has found guilty of discrimination against black people, it is telling the court that workers should turn to this commission for justice.
Okay, but the commission says it has addressed some of these findings now. What, what do you make of what the sure, commission says it's, it's done to try and improve? The commission's own- actions is completely performative. And let me give you a key example of that. As part of one of the measures to address anti-black racism, it brought in an external consultant, prominent uh, consultant whom we have confidence and trust in to do this work. The mandate of the consultant was not to provide any written reports. The the consultant was instructed to not put anything in writing. Correct. So so it would be a verbal report. So only verbal reports. There's no transparency. There's no accountability. And their efforts are deceptive because Canadian taxpayers are paying for this report that we don't know what it is. The commission also says that the rate at which it dismisses race-based cases has gone down between 2017 and 2021. What do you think about that? Well, to say that that's equal to saying, well, we discriminated against people less this year, that is unacceptable. There should be no discrimination at the commission created to address discrimination. What does it tell you? That the Canadian Human Rights Commission, the very institution meant to address systemic inequalities, is engulfed by these issues now. What does it say about the civil service at large? It tells us how deeply entrenched systemic discrimination and particularly anti-black racism is throughout our public service. Canada is viewed on the world stage as a beacon of hope for human rights. That is not a fact when we look at the Canadian Human Rights Commission and at all of its institutions. Brent, this is equivalent to state-sponsored discrimination. The state is actively discriminating against black and racialized and indigenous uh, employees. There's also an indigenous class action alleging the same thing. Nicholas Marcus Thompson, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Nicholas Marcus Thompson is the executive director of the Black Class Action Secretariat. The Canadian Human Rights Commission told us the representation of black employees in its executive team has increased from 6% in 2020 to 14% in 2022. It also said the independent facilitator didn't issue a public report in 2021 because employees had participated in the investigation with the understanding that what they said would be confidential and anonymous. The commission said it has told the Senate Standing Committee on Human Rights that it is fully prepared to undergo an independent third-party workplace assessment with a public report. She was always uh, going out in the front yard and practicing cheerleading, waving at the boys driving by, attracting attention. And she she always loved the attention. That's the uncle of the late model and actress, Anna Nicole Smith. She grew up in a small town in the Bible Belt of Texas, dreaming of something bigger. And for better or worse, she found it. Anna Nicole Smith rose to fame in the early 90s as a vivacious playboy bunny and a model for guest jeans. Before that, she'd worked as an exotic dancer in Texas. And that's where she met J. Howard Marshall, one of her other claims to fame. He was an oil tycoon and billionaire who was nearly 63 years older than her. So when they married in 1994, people accused her of being a gold digger. And the fight for his estate, which Anna Nicole Smith lost, was well publicized. Fame is something that people strive for, but the other side of that coin 
is that fame finds people and won't let them go. But Ursula McFarlane says there's more to Anna Nicole Smith than what you know already. This week, Netflix released McFarlane's new documentary called Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me. It follows her days as a young girl in Texas right up to her accidental overdose and death in 2007. Ursula McFarlane, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Very happy to be here. Nice to have you with us. Anna Nicole Smith was larger than life, and there was a time when she was everywhere. But that was quite a while ago. She died in 2007. What made you want to tell her story all these years later? Well, I think I've always been fascinated by the sort of, in a way, the the cartoon version of her. But I think now, you know, in terms of why we're making it now, I think since the Me Too conversation, you know, I think we're in a time where we are revisiting these female narratives with a different lens. I'm not sure that we would have been making this film five or 10 years ago. Hmm. And I think we're sort of revisiting these stories and hopefully examining how these women um, were treated at the time. And, you know, she was there at a moment when, you know, the tabloid media was sort of at its height. Mm -hmm. And I think she's someone who was so scrutinized. So it's kind of, it feels like a good time to look back at her. Can you remind us what Hollywood was like back in the 1990s? I mean, this is the, this is the same time as the O.J. Simpson murder trial. And when you look at it through the lens of women in the post-Me Too era, can you remind us of what Hollywood was like then for the coverage of celebrities? I think Hollywood always has adored beautiful young women and idolized beautiful young women. But I think there's something specific about this time when she comes into her own, you know, and she's a young woman, very young woman, and she gets the guest contract and Playboy. And suddenly, you know, she's larger than life and she's on billboards. And the attention that's focused on her is really quite overwhelming because this is a a moment when you've got the tabloid media, the print media, you've got the entertainment shows, you've got the 24-hour news cycle, you've got the new websites like TMZ beginning to come up. And the focus on these young women, I think, was unprecedented. And so she really was the poster girl for that kind of scrutiny, mm-hmm. um, which, as you can see in the film, you know, was had a massively powerful effect on her personal and psychological being, really. But she did have the kind of personality, as we just heard from from her uncle, that ate up that attention, that she craved it. It was one of the things that propelled her forward. And she plays to the paparazzi in the first part of her public career. And then in the second part, she seems to blame them. Do you think that she was in control? Was she in control of her life back then? Did she know what she was doing? How much did she know? You know, she, she was very aware of what she was doing. In terms of control, I think she was a strange mixture, the more I found out about her, of someone who was very vulnerable and very naive in many ways, but also kind of street smart, which maybe mm-hmm. that's a contradiction in terms. But a lot of her friends said, you know, she was smart and she knew how to play dumb. And she once told her friend Missy, it takes a really smart person to play dumb. And I think that mm. sort of was quite a good way of <laughs> defining her. She she knew how to seduce But at the same time, there was a fragility to her as well. You mentioned her friend, Missy. Missy Byram is one of the people we meet in the film, and she's quite key to the stories that you tell. I'd never heard of her before. She says that she was Anna Nicole's lover. Mm -hmm. How central was she to the telling of the Anna Nicole Smith story that you wanted? Oh, absolutely. She was, Missy was crucial for us. We knew that she existed. We knew this person existed. We didn't know her name. And our wonderful producer, 
Alex Lacey tracked her down and we drove a very long way to go meet her and had this amazing meeting with her. And she sort of revealed all these things, which, you know, was sort of so personal. And we really felt we'd got to know Anna Nicole. Vicky Lynn or Nikki, as as Missy used to call her. Mm-hmm. And we knew once we'd met Missy that she really had to be at the heart of our film because, you know, she meets Vicky Lynn at a, such a pivotal time. You know, she becomes this exotic dancer. She meets J. Howard Marshall and marries him. Her life is completely upended by that, but also Playboy and Guess. And Missy is there for the ride. Mm-hmm. And yes, they were lovers. And, you know, it falls apart because Missy loved her so much and she couldn't bear to sort of stand by and watch her be, you know, transformed by the sort of entertainment industry. Another relationship that predates Anna Nicole Smith's fame is that one that you just mentioned with J. Howard Marshall, the Texas billionaire, yeah. who she met when she was working as an exotic dancer. And then three years later, they married. And of course, she was accused of marrying him for money. And that mm-hmm. was part of the lore, the myth of Anna Nicole Smith. But after making this film and, and talking to Missy and others and, and hearing some of the very intimate back and forth conversations between uh, Anna Nicole Smith and J. Howard Marshall. What do you think about their relationship? Do you think that they actually were in love? I do think there was love there. I think there are many different forms of love. You know, he's this very old man and she's this beautiful young woman. And I think it was a different, maybe a different kind of love to a husband and wife, regular kind of love, if again, that exists. You know, I think it was, and she says that when you see her in court, you know, it was, I loved him because he got me out of a hole and he really loved me and my son. And I think all of that is true. And do I think that she wasn't always fair to him? No, she wasn't. And I think she did use up a lot of his money and, you know, and the whole sort of everything that went along with that. But she didn't marry him for his money. She made it very clear she wanted a career. She wouldn't marry him. He asked her many times and she said, I'm not going to marry you until I've made some money myself and have got a career. So, you know, she was very clear about that. So in answer to your question, I absolutely believe that there was love there. Yeah. She also seemed to really want a father for her son, Daniel, who she, yeah. she clearly adored. And yeah. the end of her life is so tragic. Daniel dies yeah. of a drug overdose. His mother is incredibly addicted to drugs at the time. Yeah. Then she gives birth to her daughter three days before Daniel dies. And then five months later, Anna Nicole herself dies of an overdose. And she was 39 years old. So she said that she would die young. Do you think that her death was inevitable? Do you think that she had written her own ending? Well, friends of hers told me that she was actually, she'd moved to the Bahamas. She had this baby. Obviously it was, the Daniel story was tragic, but actually there was new hope. She was beginning to think about a new career. She was apparently talking about becoming a country singer. I think she would have been completely Mm. fabulous. I can see it Mm -hmm. now. So she did have dreams, but I think the accumulation of the sadnesses, you know, the, the tragedy of Daniel, which was absolutely heartbreaking, and the fact that she was already taking so many drugs, I think it was just a horrible kind of, it was a sort of perfect storm in a way. You know, Daniel dying just, you know, she just couldn't live through that and couldn't survive it. And I think that's what happened. The film's called Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me. What's one thing you hope people will learn about her life and take away from this film? Well, it's a sort of wonderful, epic life in a way with a very, very heartbreaking end. But I, even though it is very sad, you know, I do want people to remember what kind of joie de vivre she had. You know, she was the larger than life person. She loved her children. She was a good friend. You know, there was a lot of love 
coming out of Anna Nicole Smith. And I want people to come away having a better understanding of her and the, the struggles that she went through and perhaps come away being a little less judgmental. I think she's someone who has judged so much during her lifetime and hopefully now perhaps with a different perspective, we can judge her less and, and enjoy her more for who she was. Ursula McFarlane, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Brent. That was great. Ursula McFarlane is the director of Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me, which is now available on Netflix. Still to come on day six, when VJs ruled the world, how much music brought music and style to the cable box and defined youth culture for a decade. What they let us do is be us. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives. Available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Live stream us on the CBC Listen app, and we're online at cbc.ca slash day6. The spirit of millions of Palestinians has been one of patience, persistence, and resilience. Today, I reaffirm our commitment to Palestinians' right to live in dignity with the full enjoyment of their human rights. On Monday, the United Nations General Assembly commemorated the 75th anniversary of what's known to Palestinians as Nakba Day. Nakba means catastrophe, and it refers to the displacement of 700,000 Palestinians from their land at the time of Israel's founding in 1948. This is the first time the UN has commemorated Nakba Day. Canada, the US, and the United Kingdom did not attend the event. Israel says the commemoration doesn't acknowledge the Arab country's responsibility for the refugee crisis that came out of the war for its independence. For Palestinians like Antoine Rafoul, the UN event had a lot of significance, but he also had a question. Why did it take 75 years to do that? Antoine is 81. He grew up in Haifa, in what is now Israel. His family fled the city when the Arab-Israeli war started in 1948. We decided to move to the safety of the Lebanese border, just north, in the hope that we will come back. When they left, Antoine's family took the bare necessities and they never went back to live in their old home, though his father did manage to make one final trip. As it happened, my father had managed to go back to Haifa secretly with the company that he was working for, which was a British company, and managed to return to the house because he still had the key and got all the official papers of the house, weddings, certificates, photos, what have you, all the official documents, and uh, took it back with him. Antoine, who now lives in Rome, still has those documents and other possessions his father brought back. And he has turned the photographs of those objects into a part of a museum exhibit, marking the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. The exhibit is called The Mathematics of the Palestinian Nakba 75, and it's currently on at the P21 Gallery in London, England. 
The one thing I regret uh, is my bicycle. My father had a bicycle, which I, I was riding, trying to learn. He left it behind. I regret that so much. You should have brought that bicycle. The key to the house is there. The land deed, the camera of my father, the pots and pans, special pots and pans, a bed cover, the table that we sheltered under on a truck, beautiful silver spoons were there. The items of my father's wedding to my mother, the necklace, the ring, uh, glasses, beautiful, beautiful glasses. I don't know how he managed to, 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 to move these things in a suitcase or in a box. The glass negatives of the photos he took. It's incredible that uh, they still survive today, you know, nearly uh, 75 years later. We wanted to make this exhibition a very uh, special one. Meaning, approach the Nakba in a new way, in a tongue-in-cheek way, I call it. So we, we thought we will include figures, numbers, arithmetics. One of them is a list of these items that we took on the truck to Lebanon. And at the border, we had to declare them. So there is a sheet of paper written by hand by the uh, customs official in Lebanon at the border and signed by my grandfather. And that was on the 8th of April, 48. So I'm using the numbers 8448, 8 April, 48. And I take that list and reconstituted it into numbers. How many of us there? How many tables were there? How many spoons? You know, rather than talking about tragedy and all that. So I, it is a tragedy, but I wanted to use numbers and figures and hence the name, the arithmetics of the Palestinian Nakba. Very, very few, very few museums around the world have tackled the Nakba. The material is there. There has never been an issue that is so well documented over thousands of shelves full of our history. And I think it takes a lot of guts and backbone strength to tackle the issue of the Nakba. And it's an issue considered dynamite. I am believing very strongly in my heart, and I think before I pass away, that the Nakba will be resolved. A democratic society with equal rights to everyone, just like what happened in South Africa, and even more, because we have the benefit of learning from that society. The young people of today have the facilities, have the internet, have social media, so I hope the speed of repairing the tragedy is much faster than the last 81 years I've been living. Antoine Raful is the lead curator of the Mathematics of the Palestinian Nakba 75 exhibit at P21 Gallery in London, England. Oh.
Johnny! I didn't stop in the train. I'm creeping, drowning. Help! It's eating into your, your carcass. It's the Great Spaghetti Diving Incident. Three lucky people will get to dive into a pool of spaghetti here at Much Music on May 28th in an attempt to find the one enchanted string. Most of us never had to climb into a kiddie pool full of spaghetti for work. But for the VJs at Much Music, that was just another day at the office. In case you're having trouble remembering, Much was Canada's 24-hour music TV channel. It ran through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Think MTV, but with a lower budget and even less structure. There was no script. There was no direction. There was nothing like this in the world. Much became famous across Canada and beyond for its off-the-cuff VJs and iconic recording space. The Much studio faced directly onto Queen Street in downtown Toronto. During interviews, massive crowds of teens and 20-somethings would fill the studio and flood out onto the street for the chance to be close to their musical heroes. You could never be so far removed from the audience because they were right there looking at you. For a generation of young adults, Much felt authentic in a way that most TV didn't. And filmmaker Sean Menard wanted to capture that spirit and preserve it for the future. So he's produced and directed a documentary called 299 Queen Street West, named after Much Music's home base. The doc uses archival footage and interviews with former Much VJs to tell the story of Canada's scrappy television upstart. You're probably having some microwave popcorn, and I just wanted to sort of rattle you up a little bit. All right, let's get to Dream Wars back with more great stories on Much. Erica M., Rick Campanelli, and Steve Anthony are three of the former Much VJs featured in the film, and they are here to tell us about the doc and what it was like to be live on air at 299 Queen. Steve, Erica, Rick, welcome to Day 6. Hi. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. So hard to tell sometimes when you're in this dark room. And so Steve Anthony begins. <laughs> are we in Las Vegas? I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> it is so great to see you guys. But when you look back at the footage that's in this documentary, Erica, what does it feel like to see you in that time? doing that stuff. Honestly, all I want is for my kids to be in the theater with me watching those clips and say, you see, I really was cool. And young. (laughs) Once. Yeah. Hold my hand really tight because you're not going to believe what you're Mm -hmm. going to see. Yeah. There, there is, I mean, when Much Music went on the air, there were no cell phones. There was no internet, no popular internet. So kids came to see people live in that building on Queen Street. How difficult was it for you to find all this pre-digital footage and put it together in, 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 this, in this documentary? Well, that is the genius of Sean Menard, who brought us all together. He is, the director. he is the director and the producer who had a vision to do this film. Many people have tried to make a documentary about much music, but it was that damn footage that no <laughs> one could actually get. And Sean is scrappy. He met managed to start a conversation with Bell Media, who has been holding tight onto all that footage all these years. And he managed to convince them and strike a deal with them. And they gave him 
all the footage he needed to make this film. So we're really grateful to Bell for that one thing. Okay, and this is this is sort of technical question, but that footage was not digitized, right? That footage would have been what on tape? Uh, yeah, a big, huge analog uh, Betacam tapes—the ones that you know you try to pick it up and you get a hernia trying, trying to pick them up, <laughs> literally. And the way the the way things were logged truly was up to the discretion of somebody who was taping it that day. So we'd have these 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 teams that would actually be. Uh, you know, they'll be in charge of the, whatever particular hour we were doing, and they would be selective. They go, yeah, let's let's tape Erica over there doing this, and they would tape it, and they would log it, and somehow yeah. it would get uh, put into the system. Um, but finding stuff was not as easy as uh, it would be if everything was digitized. It was like a, and still is, a handwritten library catalog. The the word is that Bell is finally digitizing. The catalog, uh, because they realize that some of the tape is actually starting to wear out. Oh yeah, it and we're, for sure. Yeah, we're losing the history, the the history that much music created. Yeah, it was never it was never climate controlled down there, was it? I remember working down there a good eight months before joining up on the as VJ the team as an attempt. But, <laughs> but it was always it was always warm in that room. I, I found. <laughs> so I hope they did something about the climate and controlling all those tapes because there's some great stuff. There's some like. Come on, we were all fans of these two uh, back in the 80s and, and, and their escapades with the bands that came in on a daily basis. And uh, I want to see I want to see all of it, not just the two hours that Sean Menard has put together for this amazing documentary. I want to see it all. But when you look at the stuff that's in the documentary, yeah. what, what are you seeing? What, what, what are you remembering? I'm so well, curious uh, about that. Right? Yeah, I, I remember being, being a fan of, of music and of these two and of much music back in the 80s, just watching it all live. So I remember it all going down Perfectly uh, mm. up until the days where I stepped into the building. But even before you two were involved in much music, it's, it talks about the beginning of it all, the mm-hmm. creation of this magical place. So that's what stood out. And I had never seen any of that stuff before. But when you went on air, were you ready for the fact that you were in the middle of this kind of exploding moment? Did you understand how big you guys would become? How instantly you would be recognizable when you went out in the street for a coffee? Well, no, as a matter of fact. Um, that, that's kind of the, the, the way we saw ourselves, or at least the way I saw myself, and I think Erica felt the same way, is that we were anything but stars. We were the reason we were so uh, accessible and so uh, tangible to people was because we were one of them. We were just above petty thieves <laughs> on, on the on the on the notoriety scale. So yeah, but you know, but you know, but you were famous. It, it, you know, I, I I understand what you're saying. That, yeah, that, that but was... our bosses told us in no uncertain terms, you can be replaced. Our paychecks told us too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. they treated us like, and they should have. Like we were just one component of a talented crew of people. Did you have mentors? Were there people that said to you, okay, this is what you should expect and here's what you can do. And by the way, maybe in this in, in this shot or in this interview, you should try to do that. Like, who are the people? You obviously came in, Rick, when people were, all, when it was already a phenomenon. So who did you look up to? Well, I look over to my left and I think these two, and I and unfortunately I didn't get a, there wasn't a lot of overlap between there Eric was and none. I. We only um, met for we, the first time like two years ago yeah, when you were on yeah. my podcast. Really? Well, what? We met back in the day I don't think you remember though. No, I don't. I was sitting. I was sitting in your chair at your desk, and you you came in one morning and it, you looked at I, much. At much I, music, and I, I said, I, "Get out of my chair." Something along those lines. <laughs> Who is this punk from Hamilton sitting in my chair? No, no, no. You were so polite. We, we were we were allowed to do that too. We were allowed to threaten death. Isn't that, isn't that crazy in this day and age? This, that's the other thing about it. Um, that the the rules as they are now. 
um, didn't apply back then. They, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't exist back then. Yeah. We, we, we created a new frontier in that anything that we did hadn't been done before. So mm-hmm. even in this day and age, you would look at it and go, boy, that's not really that interesting. But back then it was, wow, I can't believe that there's this giant on my television screen where all it was was a little flip of a switch and all of a sudden, you know, we've got this giant and this tiny little person. Um, mm-hmm. Nowadays it would be deemed corny, but it would never been done before. So when we did it, it was important, and it was it was different, and it was astronomical. And it was important to the fans, because you were connecting them to a world that they cared a great deal about. And the music was important to them, the, the images, the fashion, all of that stuff. So when you met the fans, what did they say to you? What did they want from you as somebody who was a, an avatar of this culture? Uh, uh, they wanted blood. <laughs> they wanted my job. They wanted our job. They wanted my they wanted. job. I, How yeah. come you oh, yeah. got the yeah. job, Eric? Oh, I could do it better. That's right. I could I I could do that, yeah, yeah. quite easily. Um, they, they just wanted contact. They just wanted some kind of contact with us. Um, that was it, and we gave it to them by, by virtue of the fact that you know we were accessible to them in the bars, uh, on the street. There was a street level thing, of course. Yeah. People didn't feel intimidated by us, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that much music has the position that it has right now in people's memories is because of that kind of thing. I look at this footage of you guys, and you look so confident. Was there any time that things went catastrophically wrong? when you felt like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? Well, before Live Aid, I literally hid in a cupboard. <laughs> I was That was my first, I think I'd been on the air for maybe three months, and I was way out of my league at that point, and I literally had a panic attack, and I hid in a cupboard. And then someone found me yeah. and said, come on, you have to go live. Mm-hmm. And But I was... I was not happy at the beginning. Yeah, it, but was, it, it was hard. But you did it. You rolled with it and went great, right? And that's how confidence grows, is by mm. doing it over and over and realizing when you make your mistakes, you don't die and you slowly get better. And, and mm. what they let us do is be us. Mm. So I became more and more Erica M. over the years. Yeah. And Steve definitely <laughs> became more Steve. And, you know, Rick also, each of us developed our own unique personas that were unscripted, that were authentic to who we are. And I think that is the secret. Yeah. And I can relate with Erica. Like both of us came from, I think I was answering phones. You, you were doing something similar. So, right. you know, er- Eric and I, we, we had no experience. So we learned talk in about front of the cameras. Being uncomfortable. And I was uncomfortable. And I was sweating profusely for eight straight months. And I remember exactly er- Denise saying, we got to work on all of this because sure, you're in front of the camera now and you're talking to these bands, but we need a little more edge from you. So, so this building, 299 Queen Street West, that's, that's the title of this documentary. The building still exists. Obviously, much music is not there anymore. But for each of you, when you go by that building now, it was, it was as much of a character in, in the, the whole life of much as each of you was. What do you think when you see the building? I, I get I, – I'm not living in the city these days, so I, I drive by every once in a while and, and I do get goosebumps. All the memories start flushing into my head, what happened, what went down there, not just with me in there as a VJ but with Steve, with Erica, with Michael Williams, with Bill Belichka, with all the VJs that came before me. Everything just comes back because I watched it religiously. So when I drive by that institution, that beautiful building, it just, it's, it's, it's all warm fuzzies. It's all warm fuzzies and uh, all the memories come back. Um, my, my experience is different. Um, I have the opposite feeling. I walk by and oh. I'm kind of angry oh. that, they, that they mistreated 
um, what was built with so much love and uh, passion and emotion. So I, I've, I have a little bit of, I'm irked a bit mm. by it. And um, so my generosity of spirit wanes when I walk by there. What about for you, Steve? What's your relationship to it now? Um, you know the term genuflect? Yeah. There we go. Mm. There you go. Yeah. So that, that's <laughs> basically in a nutshell. I'll, I'll go, I'll go by wherever I am and I'll, I'll have to genuflect to the building. Uh, mm. it was not, not only from a personal level, but, you know, knowing what we're, what this film is all about, what it did for the rest of Canada. And it was that they're, they're interwoven. The, the people who are on the air and that building are, you know, eternally stuck together. That's yeah. why we they, love Sean so yeah. much because he got it. He understood the culture of what much music was and the building is part of the story it holds the history of canadian musical culture in the last i don't know 40 years the film is 299 queen street west and three of the great people that work there erica steve and rick thank you very much for being with us this morning it has been our pleasure not yours (laughs) (laughs) thanks man i disagree Rick Campanelli, Steve Anthony, and Erica Emmer, former Much Music VJs, they're featured in the upcoming documentary, 299 Queen Street West. It will be touring across Canada in the fall. Time, weather, Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Chasing Gear and Rewriting History, Redesign by Awful Tune and Passport by Masego. And Leanne Doppler of Cochrane, Alberta, guessed the headline that we're looking for. Redesign of Canada's Passport met with criticism and memes. Congratulations, Leanne. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. We're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Riff from the headlines. And that's our show for this Victoria Day weekend. 
Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfutadese. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiak. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's two days to Victoria Day, nine days to the Alberta election, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. It's all warm fuzzies. It's all warm fuzzies. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.